Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. Into the Trenches, the Luneville Baccarat Sector, February to March, 1918. The Rainbow Division was moving into the trenches. Allied Expeditionary Force Commander General John J. Pershing, with the support of the war-weary French and British, had to get his Americans acclimated to the battlefield. By February 1918, Pershing had only five divisions in France, and one was fresh off the boats. The U.S. 1st Division, the first to arrive in France, was the only division that had actually spent time in the trenches. Pershing needed to get the others into the line. He created 1st Corps and assigned the 1st, 2nd, 26th, and 42nd Divisions to its new commander, Major General Hunter Leggett. Each division was to pair up with French units and rotate their battalions through the trenches and learn to operate and survive at the front. Pershing, who was always pushed for a separate American command and the creation of an army of maneuver, had to swallow hard on the conditions. The four American divisions would be under French command for combat tactics and strategy in the new realm of trench warfare. It made sense, as the Americans had much to learn from the veteran French. For administration, supply, and discipline, the divisions looked to First Corps headquarters, but division commanders and their staffs were under French control. The situation was critical on the Western Front. The fall of Russia meant that tens of thousands of German troops were now available for duty in the West. The men of the 42nd knew it, but it didn't deter their eagerness to get into the fight. They would come to find out that the fight was within themselves. As Lieutenant John Tabor of the 168th Iowa said, The greatest enemy is in your own breast. The thought you may not measure up and betray the faith. No one knew. The 42nd was placed with the French 7th Corps under Major General Georges de Bazelaire and sent to the Luneville Baccarat sector in northeast France. De Bazelaire, a veteran officer who commanded a corps at Verdun, was to be critical in the appraisal of the Rainbow's capabilities. The sector the Rainbow was going to had been destroyed at the beginning of the war. Luneville and Baccarat were both sacked by Bavarian troops in 1914 after the failed French drive to regain Alsace-Lorraine. The Germans, as they did throughout Belgium and eastern France, took revenge on civilians for resistance and sniping. The area had seen its share of atrocities. Since 1914, the fighting had moved elsewhere, and Luneville Baccarat was where the French and Germans sent units severely weakened by service elsewhere on the Western Front. In 1918, the sector was seen as a good place to rest by both sides. Rainbow men began loading on trains in many parts of France. General McKinstry's 67th Field Artillery Brigade, still at Coet-Quidan, undergoing training, was finally to be reunited with the division. In one of the train cars taking them to the front, men of the 149th Field Artillery Regiment secured a large amount of cognac and rum at one of the first refreshment stops where they were only supposed to get coffee and sweets. Those men had a raucous three-day ride to Luneville. At Langres, Lanjou, and Rolampon, the infantry and machine gun regiments left their training grounds and again climbed aboard the 40 by 8s a one- to two-day journey was ahead of them on the trains that seemed to strain and crawl to their destination. 
mess kitchens, hospital units, engineers, signal units, the ammunition and sanitary trains, all became alive with the reception of Division Commander Major General William Menaher's February 14 order to move to the front. The Luneville Baccarat sector took its name from the two French towns just west of the front lines in the area. They sat at the foot of the Vosges Mountains, near the Murthe River, before the Moselle Plateau, in an area southeast of Paris and Nancy. It was an area famous for earth and glassware, not so much because of the raw materials in the area, but because of the availability of lumber to feed the fires to make them. In 1918, the front-line trenches of the Luneville Baccarat sector lay about eight miles northeast of Luneville and ran from the Forêt de Paroy through the Saint-Clement area, Ansevier, and continued on a southeasterly course through Neuf Maison, which lay just east of Baccarat. There were numerous towns and villages, flatlands, hills, streams, the Murt River, forests, and wide-open vistas. It all depended on where you were in the area. The Rainbow Division was dispersed throughout the sector. Divisional and artillery headquarters set up in Luneville, as did the Nebraska and New Jersey elements of the 117th Sanitary Train. The 83rd Brigade, with its New York and Ohio infantry, were put in the left of the front line and paired up with the French 164th and 14th Divisions. 83rd Headquarters set up in Benin-Menil. The 84th Brigade was to the southeast in Baccarat and paired with the French 128th Division. Ironically, the 167th Alabama was paired with the French 167th Infantry and the 168th Iowa was paired with the French 168th Infantry. The New Yorkers in the 165th initially went to Stanislaus, the former palace of the exiled King of Poland, who lived there in the mid-1700s. It had remained empty until 1901, when it was recognized as the closest rival to Versailles, and turned into a museum. Paired with the 164th French Infantry Division, the 165th defended the far left of the front, in the Forêt de Paroy and the Rouge Bouquet. A battalion of the 149th Field Artillery attached itself to the French artillery backing them up. The 166th Ohio was to right of the 165th, concentrated around the towns of Domjevin and Beaumenil. Paired with the French 14th Division's 60th Infantry under Colonel de Perry, they also had a battalion of the 149th and a battery of the 150th Field Artillery join them in support. The battalions would rotate through the front lines that were divided into centers of resistance which projected strength to the front through the Pont des Puis, which supported the front line Groupe de Combat. All were connected by communication trenches. The Ohio men centered their focus on center of resistance Ronel. The 167th Infantry left Rolampont with each battalion taking up an entire train, but they only had a 12-hour ride to Baccarat and Saint-Clément. Paired with the French units sharing their numerical designation, their position was around Ansevier, where the trench line went right through the town. Upon arrival at the front, they were greeted by German airplanes, which they promptly waved at, only to then be scattered by the artillery fire that followed the spotter's plane positioning the new arrivals. Across the area between the trenches known as No Man's Land were the German 96th Infantry and the 6th Cavalry Divisions. The 151st Field Artillery and the 117th Trench Mortar Battalion were sent to the Baccarat Sector 2 and would back up both regiments of the 84th Brigade. The 168th Infantry lost all its personal baggage at the train depot at Rolampon 
not to be seen again for another year. They too entrained for the Baccarat sector, as they were holding the far right of the line with the French 168th Infantry of General Segon's 128th Division. Upon arrival in Baccarat, 168th Commander Colonel Matthew Tinley was immediately introduced to Colonel Ali and Major Lugre of the French 168th. They, like many French officers, were much welcome mentors to men with much to learn. The French people were as welcoming as they had been since the Rainbow's arrival in France. The Americans marveled at how in towns like Badonvilliers, less than 500 yards from the front, people just tried to go about their business. Cakes and pastries, as well as wine, were available and many AWOL soldier found a cafe to escape for a little while. The women who tend to find all battlefields were plentiful in Looneville, which the men soon began to call Looneyville. Venereal disease rates rose immediately and was sternly dealt with. Contracting venereal disease was considered the same as shooting yourself. The weather was still cold, but the snow was ebbing, and February would have its share of sun and rain and wet many a man's taste for spring. There was plenty to distract and occupy the men in Luneville Baccarat, but they were all going to the front at some point. The plan was to rotate each regiment's three battalions through the front line so that each would have about a week to ten days' duty in a month's time. A company manned two centers of resistance. Two platoons went into the Pont des Puis, and two platoons manned the Group de Combat. There were five listening posts for each Group de Combat on the front line. Each position was surrounded by rings of barbed wire. The 165th's 1st Battalion went into the Rouge Bouquet Center of Resistance on the 22nd. Out in no man's land to their front, the Germans hung a sign on a bedsheet. Welcome, Rainbow Division. There's nothing like secrecy. Though their minds had been fixed on duty in the front-line trenches, imagining what it was like, attempting to understand, the reality came as a shock. To many, the conditions were deplorable. Mud was king. Dugouts in the Pont des Puis, where the men would rest and sleep, were dank with only a wet blanket hung at the entrance to keep poison gas out. Everything was wet. One rainbower remarked, Hell is a place of mud and water. Gas was the most dreaded threat. In that first week in the trenches, there would be many false gas alarms. It was the most feared element of the trench existence to a novice. Three kinds of gas were in play, chlorine, mustard, and phosgene gas. Some rainbow men worried because there were only two kinds of gas masks. It's a fact, however, that concentrated artillery was much deadlier than gas. Standing the night watch in the group de combat, Men four to a post learned how to survive, waiting, watching, and listening for the enemy. They were responsible for holding off the initial assault and warning the men behind the front lines. Each man had to learn the system of warning rockets and flares that front-line men were supposed to set off. The general attack, artillery barrage, gas barrage, breakthrough, each situation had a special colored rocket that described what was happening at the front. The men from Alabama, Iowa, New York, and Ohio were in the thick of it now. Menahar accepted that the French would have control over where and when his division fought, but he was also going to make sure that Pershing's desire of building an army of maneuver was the focus. Patrolling and raids were going to be commonplace. Menahar made it plain for everyone to understand. People were going to die. But no man's land belonged to the rainbow. When the ambulance units in Oregon Field Hospital Unit arrived in Lourmancy, on February 17th, new GMC ambulances awaited them. The 165th New Jersey, 167th Oklahoma, 
and 167 Michigan ambulance units all got 12 ambulances and two Pierce Arrow trucks each. Casualties were expected. While most of the Rainbow Men were getting accustomed to their new sector in that first week, Menaher and MacArthur also got a good look at the front. Menaher got wind that de Basilaire was planning a trench raid with the famous Chasseurs d'Alpine troops out of the Forêt de Paroy. Wanting to witness the event, Menaher got clearance to move to the front with his staff to get a close view of the operation. MacArthur went with Menaher to the French 7th headquarters. He asked General de Basilaire for permission to go on the raid, saying, I can't fight them if I can't see them. The Americans left by car and drove for the front. A French officer with a big black dog awaited the 42nd's commander and his staff. It was apparent that the Frenchmen had been instructed to obstruct their movement to the front. As they closed in on the sound of artillery, the French officer said they were receiving fire. General Menaher, an artillery officer, knew it was fire supporting the advance, and he forced the party forward. At last, they came to a point where the Frenchman said he was ordered not to pass. The Chasseurs d'Alpine were already gone. And Menaher said he was briefly talking to the Frenchman when he turned around and saw MacArthur and his own aide, Major Thomas Handy, running around a hill that led right into no man's land. In 1921, Menaher recounted the story saying MacArthur and Handy, a future four-star general himself, moved through no man's land alone to find the French raiders. MacArthur picked up the story in his reminiscences, saying they caught up with the French by nightfall and were with them when they went into the German lines. MacArthur described a deathly quiet moment before the German lines, and then a single German weapon went off, and then all hell broke loose. The fight for the trenches was savage and merciless. It ended only when grenades were thrown into a dugout the Germans had retreated into. And MacArthur himself even helped bring back a prisoner, a German colonel. MacArthur had a very limited view of a very small sector of the Richicourt raid. Because that night, they took over 600 prisoners uh, all up and down the line the French units had. Rainbow Division Adjutant General Major Hugh Ogden, uh, he remembered that during the visit to the front at about 2 in the afternoon of the 20th, Handy and MacArthur just disappeared. No one knew where they had gone. Ogden said the staff was scared to death thinking something had happened to MacArthur and that he was too valuable to risk to barrages. The next morning, Ogden said the staff was at breakfast when MacArthur walked into the mess tent at headquarters in Lunenville and set a souvenir on the table in front of everyone, and it was a German helmet. MacArthur said that after the raid, he was surrounded by Frenchmen and treated as one of them, said he was slapped on the back and offered cognac and absinthe, probably just because he was one of the first Americans they had ever seen. According to Menaher, after returning to the friendly lines, MacArthur and Handy spent the rest of the night visiting French hospitals and watching them in action. De Basilaire, he didn't pass up the opportunity to build up a U.S. and French cooperative spirit and awarded MacArthur the French Croix de Guerre for his action. And he was the first of the Rainbow Division to be honored by the French in this manner, and he was the first of many. Since early 1915, the Lunaville Baccarat area had been a quiet sector. Rainbow Division's arrival really changed all of that. The Alabamians of the 167th, were, they were the bad boys of the camp back at Camp Mills in New York. But in the trenches, they were the guys you wanted next to you. On March 1st, a patrol went into no man's land between the lines and they approached the German lines. And the Alabama guys hung up a sign in full view of the Germans. And it's a phrase we know today and it's probably been heard on battlefields for centuries. But it said, your souls belong to God, but your asses belong to Alabama. Three days later, Sergeant Varner Hall led a patrol from Alabama's D Company that captured the first prisoners of the Rainbow Division, two men from the 77th Bavarian Division. And that was all it took. The Germans woke up and the trenches pretty much just exploded. 
That following morning at 4.30 in the morning on March 5th, uh, the Germans responded to the Alabama raid, and they hit the 168th Iowa in the Chamois area at Group de Combat 11 and 12. Uh, 11 jutted out from the American line and was wide open on three sides, and in the dead of night, German pioneer troops lay taped right up to the American position. German artillery hit the front lines, and then their infantry followed that tape in the dark and began their assault. And artillery from the Germans then shifted to the rear of the 42nd's lines to disrupt any reinforcements trying to come forward. MacArthur and uh, 151st Field Artillery Commander George Leach, uh, they got caught in this really murderous fire back at Badonvilliers, but they both escaped unscathed. And they were lucky. Uh, seven men in a trench mortar battery from the headquarters company were all killed when a German shell landed right in the middle of them. And 20 men of the 168th were killed by artillery fire that night. On came the 15th Bavarian Storm Battalion. Off went the signal rockets as soon as the attack began. On the left, Captain Harrison Cummins McHenry and his Des Moines men of the B Company felt the full force of the German artillery. And then the Germans moved into the American trenches. Private Byron von Raden was one of the first to die. He got killed by a German hand grenade. He had just turned 16. Corporal Marvin Dunn, he was in the opening of his dugout when he too was wounded by a German grenade, but he manned his automatic weapon and kept the Germans out of his dugout, saving all the guys he was with. He died later. Reinforcements arrived from the Pont des Puis and drove the Bavarians out of the trenches uh, before they acquired the prize they sought, which was a prisoner for propaganda purposes. The enemy would not have an Iowa man to ridicule. The dead were many. 20 men of the 168th uh, were killed that night. 18 of them were lost to the shelling, uh, Captain Hen McHenry among them. The first Iowa officer to fall in the war, he was killed by an 8-inch shell when he stepped into this dugout uh, to avoid the heavy shelling, and the shelling hit right on top of him. After the war, Des Moines de dedicated a park to him, their hometown star athlete and war hero. He had been a big athlete in the town before the war. Men of the Iowa Regiment felt that March 5th was the day they all changed. And it became the anniversary that they marked every year as they grew old. Whenever the Iowa guys would have a, a reunion or a meeting, it would always take place on, on March 5th. Now spurred into action, uh, German artillery just became relentless. The 165th New York 2nd Battalion was harassed incessantly as they came forward to relieve the 1st Battalion on March 7th. It was their turn in the trenches of the Forêt de Paroy. 42 men of E Company's 1st Platoon went into the Rouge Bouquet sector, helping defend the center of resistance, Roqua. Roqua was on a hill, and the position was fortified by trenches and breastworks to the front and in the rear of the hill as well. And trenches zigzagged to the north from the center of res resistance until you came to a dugout, which 1st Lieutenant John Norman's 1st Platoon took over. The rookies at the front were quickly recognized by the Germans, and sniper fire started immediately. At 3.30 in the afternoon, it was followed by artillery fire on March 7th, and Norman ordered his men into the dugouts. Now, half the men in the 1st platoon descended 40 feet below the earth with Norman, who himself had just escaped being buried when another dugout he was in was hit by artillery. Men were consoling uh, the shaken officer when a German shell from a mine warfare landed right on top of their dugout and it collapsed immediately, burying everybody within, save a few who were on the stairs. After many hours of being buried, Alf Helmer was excav excavated by the New Jersey ambulance people, as well as members of the 3rd Platoon and 165th Pioneer Troops. And he was one of a few, because uh, 19 men of the 1st Platoon lost their lives in the dugout that night. 
and the tragedy inspired the 165th soldier poet Joyce Kilmer, very famous poet, to write one of his most famous works, The Rouge Bouquet. French officers trained in the 42nd Division knew the Germans had made some hard blows. They also knew the Americans had to respond in kind to let them know they could handle it. Now, the French had been at this business for a while, uh, trench warfare, and therefore they had already planned for the situation. General Order 95 was issued by the French 128th Division four days before the bombing at the Rouge Bouquet. Two companies were taken from the French 168th and 169th Regiments and placed under the command of this colonel named Ali. The French were going to take F&M companies of the 168th Iowa and launch a raid into the German trenches. And this was a big deal. The French knew the Americans were eager, but they wanted to see how they were going to react in combat. As chief of staff of the division, MacArthur makes all the arrangements at headquarters in support of the two American companies. And then he decides to go on the raid as well against the Saillant du Fay. The two American companies began their training behind the lines in Baccarat uh, on March 3rd. And Captain Lloyd Ross led Company M, and he was attached to Major Lugret and to the French troops of the 169th Regiment. Of Ross, MacArthur would say later, I've known many soldiers of many lands and of many degrees, but never one greater fighting capacity than Lloyd Ross. And much of the greatness of the fame of the rainbow has resulted from his exploits. Captain Charles Casey and Company F, they were attached to the French 168th troops under Major Massy. And the raid was aimed at two separate areas of the German trenches. Ross and M Company were going to hit the Mecklenburg trenches of the Hindenburg Line, while F went against the Salient du Fay trench system. And on March 7th, ready or not, they left Baccarat and made their way toward the front. M Company and the 169th were heading to their jump-off point at Center of Resistance, uh, Village Negre, and F Company moved toward theirs, which was just to the left of them at Neuvilliers. At 1 a.m. on March 9th, Allied artillery starts slamming the German lines. And Colonel George Leach, he was the commander of the 155th Field Artillery, said they threw over 5,000 shells at the Germans. And it didn't take long before the Germans started responding. The F Company was behind the lines waiting to move into their jump-off position just as the shells started coming in. And before long, this French officer and an American colonel in a long purple scarf start moving amongst them all. And they appear totally calm and confident. And they talk with all the soldiers and offer words of encouragement during the shelling. And the men really like seeing officers with them, you know, even if they didn't even know who they were. At one point, the Frenchman was heard to say that all these guys they were looking at acted like veterans in handling the shelling. And the American colonel said it was no wonder his father said Iowa troops were some of his best. And the officer was talking about his father, Arthur MacArthur, who commanded Iowa National Guard Regiment during the Philippine Exurrection at the turn of the century. And Douglas MacArthur and the French officer, Major Jacques Corbabon, were considered an inspiration to all who saw him in the trench that night, uh, just because of their complete professional bearing. Now, after losing three men to the German shelling, M Company went over the top with the French 169th right before dawn. Ross's men cross no man's land and enters in German trenches as planned, but they really find few Germans. Men in M Company believed the Germans knew the raid was coming, and they had moved out before. A few d remained. They were determined to fight it out, and they killed Privates Lloyd Merrill and Lloyd Culp, both. And then the Americans cornered a few from the 9th Ulan Regiment of the 6th Cavalry Division who chose not to leave. Two surrendered, the others took refuge in a dugout, and when they wouldn't come out, hand grenades entered the affair. It was, it was war. It was brutal. With prisoners in tow, the raiders headed back to their lines, only to be strafed unmercifully by German planes catching them in the early light. And uh, they killed one of the corporals named Henry Fall. 
Six men were dead and 22 were wounded in this very quick action. Uh, but Lloyd Ross's Americans had proven themselves resolute and efficient, and Colonel Gerard, who was head of the French 128th Division, uh, he was an exec of General Segon, he was exuberant in his praise. As dawn was breaking, Captain Casey gave the word to go over the top uh, for F Company, and it was just about the time that M Company was coming back from their raid. MacArthur said he was the first out of the trenches, and he was running full force through this cold, drizzling raid toward the German lines. And he would write, At first he thought he was alone, but soon the Iowa men surrounded him hell-bent for the Germans, a roaring, vehicle, a roaring avalanche of glittering steel and cursing men. Now, French reports were that the raid was a disciplined walking march in column toward the German position. F Company, as well, found the German lines destroyed and pretty much vacant. Um, a search was made of the front lines, but little more than a bloody German blouse was found in the trenches. A three-starred rocket shot from the Allied lines signaled it was time to return after about 45 minutes. No F Company men were killed in the attack, but while returning to their lines, a hand grenade went off in a satchel of grenades carried by this private named Edwin Todd, and both Todd and uh, Corporal Clifford Stevens were killed instantly by the grenades. Uh, MacArthur's presence on the raid was really noticed by one Iowa man because he remarked he had no idea who the man in the sweater was. But when he found out it was the chief of staff, he could have knocked him over with a feather. And all the Iowa men, as well as most of the Rainbow men, are realizing there's really an adventurer inside MacArthur. The chief of staff was gaining a lot of recognition. MacArthur, Captain Casey, Ross, and the French Major Corbabon were each awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for their roles in the raid. You know, it's the next highest to the Medal of Honor. Now, was there doubt about the awards at Chaumont headquarters? Major General A.W. Brewster, he's a man who was awarded the Medal of Honor for action during the Boxer Rebellion and was now the Inspector General of the Allied Expeditionary Force. He visited the division and investigated the matter before the recommendations were approved. But upon visit, he wholeheartedly approved them all. Strangely, MacArthur's citation for his Distinguished Service Cross says he was operating with D Company. Uh, the famous Father Francis Duffy of the 165th Infantry said there was talk throughout the regiment about how it wasn't the place of the chief of staff to be accompanying small unit raids. And MacArthur, however, felt he had to know what was happening at the front. He had to see it. He had to know if machine guns had been brought up, if it was too muddy to move, if hills were obliterated by, artill by artillery, if barbed wire obstructed avenues of approach. And Duffy and 165th Battalion Commander Major William Donovan, uh, they both agreed on the matter. They said MacArthur's actions were good for the men's morale more than anything, uh, as long as he didn't end up dead. A few days after the Salient Dufay's raid, MacArthur's penchant for roaming the front lines almost cost the Rainbow Division its chief of staff, because on March 11th, while he was out scouting the front lines with his aide, Major Walter Wolfe, MacArthur had his first serious encounter with gas inhalation. And he, he never wore a gas mask, or a helmet for that matter. But Wolf got him back to headquarters, and he refused to go to the hospital, even though it took MacArthur a few days to really be able to clear his lungs and his head, for that matter. Back in the United States, the newspaper said he was seriously wounded, and this set MacArthur's mother aflame. It would take a personal message from General Pershing before Mary Pinkney Hardy MacArthur calmed down. Eight days later, on March 19th, however, MacArthur was well enough to accompany Secretary of War Newton Baker when he came to visit the division in France. It was quite a thrill for Baker to see the 42nd in the field. It really was his division. He had been there at its inception, had picked the original division commander, and MacArthur as chief of staff. He was instrumental in keeping it whole and not torn apart his replacements upon its arrival in France. 
Baker arrived at the Lunaville Baccarat sector with Pershing's chief of staff, Brigadier General James Harbert, a friend of MacArthur's who he had dealt with before since getting to France. And uh, Baker had MacArthur accompanying him for part of the tour. And while visiting his home state, uh, 166 Ohio, because Baker was from Ohio, uh, Baker comes under intermittent shelling. And it filled him with this great sense of accomplishment and fulfillment, because he was saying, I I've been under shelling now, haven't I? And when the secretary took his leave from MacArthur, MacArthur gave him the Bavarian helmet he captured on that first raid at Rishikor. And Baker later gave it to MacArthur's mother in Washington. Baker also told the press that MacArthur was the greatest fighting frontline officer. Pretty high praise from the Secretary of War. Rainbow was approaching the 30-day mark when all three battalions of each regiment would finish their 10 days of the frontline tour. As they planned, they were going to leave the front and move back to Roland Pont for further training. And General Order Number 9 went out on March 19th. All units had their marching orders, but the business of the trenches really didn't cease. German shells continued to fall and the New Yorkers of the 165th were about to embark on their first raid of the war. At 7.30 p.m. on the evening of the 20th, D Company of the 165th, 1st Battalion, joined two companies of the French Chasseurs des Pieds for a raid on the Haute-Cherrière. Like the Saïd du Fouet's raid, the preliminary bombardment drove the Germans out of the front-line trenches. And further into the German lines, the New Yorkers drove, just as the Germans planned because their artillery began working over their own trenches, raining on the D Company that had penetrated farther than they should have. New Yorkers and the Chasseurs returned empty-handed to their trenches uh, without prisoners, and many men were left behind, victims of the bombardment. There was a lieutenant named Henry A. Boots, and he was a German immigrant, and four of his brothers served in the German army. But he was the officer who led D Company across no man's land, and he spent the rest of the night returning to recover all those who went down. Booze retrieved them all, all but one man who was never seen or heard from again. The raid ended, but the night was far from over. Just hours before Boots's raid went over the top, the Germans began lobbing mustard shells at the New Yorkers, and it was the largest gas attack the Rainbow had yet seen. Headquarters Company and K Company, they really caught the worst. Gas shells landed with a thud, and then you heard the fragile casing break, and then gas began seeping out, flowing in the direction of whatever way the wind was blowing. Unfortunately, it had been raining on the New Yorkers before the gas attack, and now the gas clung to their wet uniforms, and soon men began to go blind. Lieutenant William D. Crane and most of his K Company men, they lost their sight. Crane was one of many Harvard graduates that volunteered for ambulance duty in France before the United States had even entered the war. He had served with the French Army at Verdun and then joined the U.S. Army when America entered the water. Uh, his duty with the Rainbow was short-lived, however, because the gas attack put him in the hospital till June. Gas attack had lasted until 4 a.m. and even put the 165th 3rd Battalion Commander, Major J Timothy J. Moynihan, out of action. Over 400 men of the 165th Infantry were gas victims that night. But there was only one death, and that was the French chemical officer who was assigned to the 165th, Sergeant Pierre. And he lost his life, making sure everyone else was looking after their own. Now everybody's looking to get out of the trenches. They've got their orders. They're ready to go. Um, before the 3rd Battalion of the 168th could get out, however, they received the heaviest shelling their regiment had seen in the war yet. Next day, on March 22nd, they turned over the front to the French 169th Regiment. They, like the New Yorkers, Ohioans, and the Alabamians, as well as the west of the Rainbow, were all headed out of the trenches and headed to Roland Pont. 
And they all left with the highest praise from the French officers that trained them. Their performance was not only a great boost to the French confidence, but really to Pershing's as well. Uh, the commanding general had four divisions that were now veterans. The 1st, the 2nd, the 26th, and the 42nd. And they were all going to be needed. On March 21st, Field Marshals Paul von Hindenburg and Eric von Ludendorff unleashed Operation Michael with 40 mobile and 30 attack divisions that blew a hole 40 miles wide and 40 miles deep on the Picardy front against the British. And it was nothing like the war had seen since 1914. All of the Kaiser's troops released from the Eastern Front had made their way west, and now the German high command was making its play to end the war before the American troops could tilt the balance. 21,000 British soldiers became prisoners of war uh, in that attack. And the Allies faced a desperate situation. All the veteran forces, the French that is, were needed to the north. So before General Order 9 had time to even really dry, it was reversed. The French needed the Rainbow to take over a complete sector. And there was not going to be any more training. So back into the lines of the Baccarat sector they went. And the Rainbow was now on its own. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.